Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Today is Sunday, February 11th. This is episode 55. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we're going to have some fun today. We are. We always have fun, though, Tony. That's what we do on the show. But before we dive into all the deep levels of fun that we have for both pinball and video games this episode, uh, it's introduction time. So let's go ahead and punch those out. What's going on, Tony? Not a whole lot. Um, I've been playing the same games I've been playing for like a month now and listening to the same stuff I've been listening to for a month now. And I uh, watched the opening ceremonies of the Olympics and remembered that, oh, yeah, NBC just utterly ruins the Olympics. And it makes me not even want to watch it because their people won't shut up during any of it. And they cut out, they cut away from stuff that you want to see to go talk about somebody. I mean, it's like, oh, I'm in the middle of, they're in the middle of doing some actual sporting event thing. Oh, well, these people aren't Americans. So we're going to cut away and we're just going to talk about how this guy worked at a Taco Bell for, for six months while training. It's inspirational, inspirational sports story. Why don't you accept that? Because it's terrible and that ruins everything. Mm. Why can't they be like, 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 like the, I don't know, like in like the BBC and the, and, and the CBC, they literally just stream everything. You just choose the sport you want to watch and you can watch the sport with, without all the BS tied on top of it. That doesn't sound like a very good way to make money. Yeah, I guess not. Well, I have uh, not actually been playing too many games because I have been watching a lot of Overwatch League, which I know we're going to touch on in the video game segment. And But I have done some things. Uh, we actually both made it out to the monthly 403 Club tournament and did pretty well compared to how we normally do. And it was a crowded field, so I was really pleased with that. And in addition, uh, oh, I do have a correction. I always like to put my corrections in the intro. Uh, I caught this one myself, so I can't give anyone credit for calling me out. But when uh, Steve Bowden was on last episode and I gave him a litany of introductions, which I worked very hard on, and people should go back and listen if they have not because they are super awesome. And he was a fun guest to have. Uh, I made a mistake afterwards when I was describing the summary. I called them acronyms, which obviously is not correct. They were alliterations. So I do know the difference. I was wrong. There's my correction. Uh, You're never wrong. No, not, not ever. Only every third episode am I correcting myself. <laughs> and and uh, speaking of episodes, I do want to mention uh, that I found another mixed gaming podcast. There aren't very many of us. And when I say mixed gaming, I mean that cover pinball and some other or other types of gaming. So we're primarily pinball, and we also do a decent amount on video games, for example. Game Room Junkies is a, is another one that's actually shutting down, and I think they're the longest-running one. I think they've been at it for about eight years. And they were mostly arcade games, I'd say followed by pinball, followed by console. Mm-hmm. And then there's also Broken Token, which is very much mostly arcade, followed by some pinball. Well, I I was doing some searching, and I found another one called Flippin' and Mashing. And they are relatively new. They've only had a half dozen episodes. And they are covering home video games, arcade games, and pinball. So I'm not quite sure of the balance yet because I I don't usually go back and listen to prior episodes. So I've only heard the fifth and sixth. Looking at their show notes, my summary would be it seems like they're focusing mostly on home video games, followed by pinball, followed by arcades. But that might vary a bit. The fifth episode, which is what I came in on, was very well-balanced. Uh, the only thing I will note is all the other ones I've mentioned are clean podcasts, and this one is explicit. 
So, and if that bothers people, just be aware of it. But I do have a link in the show notes. So if you want to give them a try, I, I, I found them entertaining. Otherwise, I wouldn't mention them. So that's it for intros. So I guess we need to get going on to what I'm assuming most people have been wanting to know about. And that is a interview that we had with uh, Robert Mueller. And so we had scheduled to drop it in on this episode. You, Tony, weren't able to participate because I ended up scheduling the interview early on Friday morning. So, yeah, uh, I had to work. Yeah. And I was working from home, so it worked, <laughs> it worked out for me. But, uh, anyway, uh, I had a lot of questions. We had questions come in from listeners. We had questions come in, uh, from Pinside. I monitored the main Pinside thread to try and help develop questions. And, uh, it's about 50 minutes long, but, uh, which is the longest interview we've ever run. I normally keep them under 30, either by recording them that way or with aggressive editing. But I it just wasn't really anything I felt that could be cut. So we're going to drop that in here, uh, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about it. Hey, everyone. This is Dennis with the Eclectic Gamers Podcast, and I'm being joined by Robert Mueller, principal of Deep Root Tech, who's here to talk with us about Deep Root Pinball. Robert, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you very much for uh, for having me, and uh, I look forward to uh, discussing everything Deep Root over the next few uh, few minutes. All right. Well, we're going to get started because it has definitely been a bombshell in the pinball community to have the announcement of another player in the manufacturing side. And the noteworthy thing I think lately has been the claims process that Deep Root has established to uh, resolve issues with the former, or I guess it's still technically current customers of Zidware. You had a webinar, which I have a link to in our show notes for listeners who are curious uh, that uh, discussed what the plan would be in terms of uh, making the Zidware games. Uh, and my bullet point summary would be, for those that haven't heard it yet, that the games that were planned to be Zidware games are planned to be Deep Root Pinball games, though there can be changes, including the theme. The customers of Zidware would have the opportunity to try the games before accepting them in a Goodwills arrangement. Uh, the customer would be responsible for any applicable taxes and shipping, and that you are offering a multi-tier option for Deep Root Games in compensation to those that were in on Retro Zombie, Retro Atomic Zombie Adventureland, or because it's a mouthful, commonly called Raza and Alice in Wonderland customers. And uh, the final note I put down is that John Papaduke, more commonly known as J-Pop, who was the designer of those games, will be working on the designs of those games for Deep Root, but he might not be the only person working on those designs. Uh, is that an accurate summary? Yeah, that's very good, Dennis. Uh, I think you hit the major bullet points, absolutely. I didn't know if there was anything you wanted to add here that I, I didn't mention or that wasn't discussed in the webinar relating to the, the claims process. We're also going to have a link to the Deep Root Pinball website so people can go there and route themselves to the claims information. It's also discussed in the webinar. And we do have the links to the two This Week in Pinball interviews that you've already done on behalf of Deep Root. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I just would add that, you know, I'm not asking for anyone sympathy. Uh, you know, deeper, I and, and Deeper got into this uh, of our own free will and volition. We know what we were getting into, so uh, I'm. we're very understanding that there's a lot of people out there in a very small industry here who have megaphones louder than they probably should, and, um, you know, they have definitely uh, made our life a nightmare. And what we've tried to do, and just kind of summarizing the, 
the 35,000 foot view is we've, we've been having to try to ride very fine lines. We, we knew J-pop was going to be a challenge. We knew we wanted to take care of all the Zidware customers, even though, um, many people out there, uh, especially those who aren't Zidware customers might not have even wanted that to happen because then they wouldn't have anything to complain about anymore. Uh, we know that some Zidware customers are not going to, you know, go through with the leak for one uh, reason or another. We've also, in, in creating, you know, the pinball on top of that, we've had to ride that fine line of we need to stay enough to get Zidware customers to believe that we're going to follow through with our promises, uh, but not too much that gives away a lot of our trade secrets, and there's a lot of those that we're trying to, to keep. Uh, more so than any other pinball manufacturers, all of them put together. Uh, then times, you know, probably a couple multiples. But we've also had to ride the very fine line behind the scenes of licensing, which I know Canada recently was talking about it like it was some easy piece of cake. And I think a lot of people think it, uh, think it is. I think only behind the scenes with each of the manufacturers can, can really the truth come out that licensing is extremely difficult. The reason why people complain about licenses all the time is because there's not a lot of them that are going to be available for pinball. And those licensors uh, have varying opinions about pinball and, you know, how they would want their, how expensive it is and how what they would want their, their, their licenses to be used. So in going through the licensing process, we need to, we as people have had to have, it presented enough of a picture out there for them to understand that we're, we will be a major player, uh, and a competitor, but not enough, um, you know, to, to give away a lot of what we're doing because as we found out very quickly is that there is definitely a lot of, um, talking through licensors. So for instance, one major license that we're going for, uh, we actually called the other day and got, tried to get an update. We were like, Oh, well, another manufacturer called asking if uh, they could compete against you and give a counteroffer. And it was like, well, that was supposed to be completely confidential. And it's just a lot of this kind of porous Swiss cheese kind of in this dysfunctional industry has caused us to have to make some decisions a lot of people don't understand. And, and I, I really don't need their sympathy or support, but it, it explains sort of why we've had to, to ride this more legal line and position when it comes to Zidware, but also teasing probably more than we really wanted to, to try to ride the licensing line uh, and, and try to get Zidware customers to understand that we really do sincerely want to uh, fulfill all of these promises. So long-winded, but it gives you the 35,000-foot view of maybe some of the decisions we've made. Okay. And I, I do want to get into some of the more general aspects regarding uh, Deep Roots entry into into the hobby of pinball and the manufacturing side specifically. But first, I, I'm going to actually zoom in. So we're going to go from 30,000 feet. We're going to go down to ground level. And I want to hit on a few things that have come up in uh, the two interviews that you've done with This Week in Pinball. And the uh, the first area I kind of want to tackle is one in your most recent interview, and that is in regards to assembly. Now, in, in that latest interview, you discussed a, a concept called quad assembly, and you did cite that there are, there are trade secrets behind the process. So I'm, I'm not going to try and get at the trade secrets, or well, I wouldn't mind if you want to share the trade secrets, but that's not my goal. Uh, what, I, what I'm interested in is setting those aspects aside. Can you help explain what broad manufacturing concept the idea is sort of grounded on? If it, because it was pointed out that it's not an assembly line. So I'm assuming it must be modeled, though, broadly speaking, on some generally accepted manufacturing practice on which you're adding more ingredients to your secret sauce. 
Yeah, absolutely. The great thing about building the team that I've built with people outside of pinball is they don't come in with uh, the preconceived notions uh, and limitations that, that pinball just kind of breeds in of itself. And so uh, most of the people uh, that, that have been brought onto the deeper team have substantial manufacturing experience in other industries. And so by bringing all of those together and talking about the unique nature of how pinball is manufactured, because it is very unique, uh, a lot of uh, multidisciplinary parts and, and, and you know, services coming together into one, one finished product, um, we've come up with what we think is a very uh, pretty amazing uh, um, new take on manufacturing to be able to throttle um, outputs at any given time without laying off workers or firing people or hiring a bunch of new people, as well as dealing with the very complex nature of the raw materials uh, and, and the finished work that needs to be done with those, and then through the assembly process. So quad assembly is still assembly. It's just not done on assembly line. It's done more in an office type of nature uh, with batch workflow. Uh, Etc. Okay, so it's it's oriented to allow you to be flexible in, in terms of outputs without having to adjust your workforce size. Absolutely, uh, you know, it's one of the big problems is you know I think um, other manufacturers, I'll just leave it at that, have uh, had lots of excuses as far as vendors or problems with parts and sourcing and things like that. Those are problems that every manufacturer has, and we know we will have those as well, but. We think our quad assembly system will be able to um, make those, either minimize them or make them completely irrelevant, and um, we'll be able to do more with less space. So while we might not have the huge volume of space that Stern has now, um, we won't need that. We could probably do more with 25,000 square feet than Stern could do with 100,000. Um, and this goes more to agile manufacturing versus you know the Lean Six Sigma and all that. Um, so it's just a different take uh, at, the same pro- at the same time trying to have a, a good end result uh, that will allow us to be very, very lean and mean when it comes to manufacturing uh, a complex machine. Okay. Uh, get, I know this is going to be hard, hard to predict, but uh, can, can you predict uh, when fully operational at the, at the location that, you, that, you've, that were cited at the, in the latest This Week in Pinball interview – uh, what, do you, what do you envision to be average weekly output capability, assuming the demand is there? Well, in the, the years I've been researching, and is, there is a reason why none of the major manufacturers, maybe exception of Spooky, releases sales numbers is because um, it's, it's not a lot, right? There's not a lot of new in-box that, that are sold these days. I mean, if I had to take a guess, you know, some years it might be as low as 4,000, some years it might be as high as, you know, 7,500. Amongst all the manufacturers, with Stern probably taking, you know, 80 to 90% of that. So, I mean, I could, I could tell you we could manufacture 100, you know, a day. I could tell you we could next manufacture one a day. I think at the end of the day, the, the market itself and what can actually be sold, uh, you know, in pinball is going to dictate more of where our output is going to be versus what the physical uh, and business limitations are going to be. Um, with the space we have in the quad assembly, uh, and especially in getting the manufacturing ramped up, and it will take time to, to get it ramped up, um, I could give you numbers, but no one's going to believe them. And the only thing people are going to believe is when they can come and buy a, buy a deep root pinball machine, they're going to have it within two weeks of buying it. No waiting, 
uh, or anything else, and that's going to make more of the difference um, and, and drive more people to, to buy from us than elsewhere. Okay. Uh, also, I guess my, my kind of final assembly category question that I had is uh, in the in the aforementioned interview, uh, the, you also noted that there wasn't a plan to do physical test games, at least physical test games on location. I, I wanted to get some clarification on are you – are you doing a Whitewood stage at all, or do you just do more towards a, a final production model, or are you doing tests virtually? So uh, that it's a complex question because it has to do with more what's behind the scenes and then whether or not we're going to be showing that in public. So let me do the behind the scenes first. So we have four levels of, of production uh, behind the scenes. Uh, the first level is alpha. That's more of the concept design. If we are going to do a foam core on a title, then you know that would be the foam core model, laying out you know the general you know paths, ramps, lanes, etc., uh, where the general components are going to be. The next step up would be the normal white wood, and that's where we have something that's flippable, uh, has most of the mech, but maybe not some of the complex mech. Very simple programming, um, just to make sure the geometry is good and it flips well. So the, the one after that is a release candidate and which I like to call Blackwood just as a, as a, you know, play off of Whitewood. Right, but right. release candidate would be something where our, our code is actually, uh, in play with the components and we're able to actually flip with the rule set. Um, most of the artwork is probably laid out by then, uh, as well as, uh, plugging in where sounds and, and other video assets are going to be. And then release to manufacturing RTM. Uh, would be something that's that's basically ready to. It's been designed to be manufactured at that point, and it's ready to be shipped to customers. So on the inside, we, those are sort of our levels. So while I said there wasn't really a test picture, of course there is. Just maybe not in the same way that that other pinball companies might be might be using it. Okay. Now, as far as the public is concerned, in the future, yes. Right now. People, we're, we're still going through the legal process of, we have probably 25 to 30 patents in process, um, and it is extremely complicated. And we want to get what we're doing protected uh, and locked down, and unfortunately, even seeing the general look of the cabinet will give away a lot of what we're doing. And so um, it's very difficult for us, prior to the five days of deep root, to get a machine with that look out, uh, still while we're still you know taking care of all the patents and getting them all filed and and having that that intellectual property we spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears on, um, you know, to protect it. So um, hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, speaking of code, as you as you brought up with the uh, the Blackwood stage, I want to transition into some software oriented questions because that was a portion of that latest interview as well. During which you noted that a company, Turner Logic, is going to be handling the software side of the equation. I've gone and reviewed their online portfolio, and I see they've worked on a, on a diverse blend of projects, uh, though none of them seem to have been gaming specific. I was curious. I mean, with my understanding, which, and I'm not a programmer, but but I know some. And while I I would be confident that a programmer who can do drone software or accounting software is capable of coding for a game as well. Uh, some of the questions that have come up have been regarding the creation of rules. And when you announced that latest slate of sort of all-star designers, all-star sound person, all-star engineers, there wasn't a name that was announced that was going to be handling the rules on the software creation side. 
So I'm I'm curious if you're if you're planning to bring in someone to lead on software design who's a veteran of it, or are you confident that Turner Logic will be able to create rules with their existing staff? So um, I think that's again two separate components. So let's separate rule sets from actual programming because th- those are two very different um, areas. And in fact, the, the problem is in pinball; those have been combined. And I think it's actually uh, been a big disservice, and that's why there's so many issues with incomplete code, delayed code, uh, and you have these long, long, crazy long uh, development cycles where you've gone, you know, nine months to years and years and years trying to get, you know, this insane code rule set out. It's just, it's unheard of. And, and you know, I, I think that it's going to be hard for the other manufacturers to keep up with us uh, once we once we kind of let the public see what we're doing. And I think it'll be a, you know, basically a, a breath of fresh air um, in, in the way we're going to approach this. So let, let me talk a little uh, real quickly about rule sets. And then I'll talk about the, the actual programming. Okay. So rule sets, rule sets can be really complicated or they can be really easy. Uh, and I think a lot of people put too much um, into having like the one beautiful rule set. The great thing about having, uh, not having one, uh, rule set to rule them all is you don't have the very issue of trying to create a rule set that everyone's going to love because not everyone is going to love every rule set, right? And so um, not only is it not hard to create a rule set, I mean, there's a lot of things to kind of see that other people have done to kind of build on or that it plays directly to the certain theme that year that pinball is, that pin, specific pinball machine is actually, you know, playing on. But I mean, I think from our standpoint is that we have been able to come up with some good rule sets ourselves. John Norris is just a rule set king. He's the one that kind of started the pin golf movement, which was, was very uh, innovative. And so John Norris is just like constantly telling me, oh, this would be a great rule set. This, this would be a great thing. This would be a good thing. So, you know, John Norris has really spearheaded that. And I would say, even though a lot of people would, would disagree, I can tell you internally, J-pop is, is very good with rule sets as well. It's very you know, unique things, and it's tied directly to his very eccentric, you know, layout. Um, but we do, we have reached out, and I'm not going to name names, but we would like top tournament players to um, be consultants for two reasons. Uh, first, we want to make sure that our tournament modes uh, would be something that would be fun to play in tournaments, doing some things that maybe have never been uh, tried before in tournaments. But we also want people who know rule sets like the back of their hand to come in and tear apart ours and to be able to kind of give us, uh, give us great, you know, constructive feedback. I mean, we're, we're not immune and we, we don't want to, it's not like we don't want to hear from anyone at pinball. We don't want to start the foundation of what we're doing based upon people in that echo chamber. Uh, it's nice to get, you know, pinball included because we're doing pinball, but we want to try something new and then pull back as we need to kind of modify it. Um, you know, to to do what a normal, so it not only goes to someone who's never played pinball before and it's really fun and immersive, but also for, you know, a big tournament player or, or a fan of pinball is to be something that's familiar to them and they're going to have fun playing it as well. And it'll still be challenging. So on the, on the other side, real quick, on the computer side, um, Chris, who runs Turner Logic, is one of the most brilliant people I know. Uh, he and I get along very well. Uh, we, we have a lot of neat ideas. Um, I think when, when he heard the scope and what I wanted to do, he just like, it blew his mind. It was so exciting that he has dropped almost all his other contracts and his whole team has focused 100% on pinball. 
and we're going to be doing some 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 you know crazy things that I, w- I want to go into detail because I want to keep the excitement for the the five days of Jupiter when we tell everyone how we're doing code and and I think it will people will go oh my gosh that's such an amazing idea why hasn't anyone done that before um, and then they're going to go wow okay so what do we do with this now what what uh, what opportunities do we have now to work with code and rule sets and and where do we go so it's going to really revolutionize how code is done and and, and not only behind the scenes uh, but also how it's used uh, by players and, and and operators for that matter out in the field okay so getting back a little bit on, on the rules portion uh, that you tackled first so your your plan is that the games will will ship with code that is what I would describe as tournament viable. Um, I want to be, I want to parse my words here very carefully and say that that will be an, an irrelevant, um, that will be irrelevant uh, when it comes to our code. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I remember in the, this week, in pinball, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, go ahead. I'm, I'm just, trying, I'm trying to be vague, but not vague. So later on, people can say that I was being honest, but not trying to give away what the excitement is. If I was to tell you exactly what we were doing, it would blow everyone's minds. But yet again, it would be like, oh my gosh, why hasn't any, everyone else been doing this all along? It makes so much sense. So uh, that's how I'll leave it. Right, right. And I, and I understand there are elements still until until you've done the five days of deep root that can't, that can't be made public. Uh, and in the interview with This Week in Pinball, you had pointed out that there would be a lot of player control over the over the software, over, I believe, the rule settings as well. I was curious if that meant the software itself would ultimately be open source for the game, so players would be, or owners would be free to make modifications of the code and release the code and it be publicly downloaded and not cause any issues? So open source has issues, especially when you're dealing with licenses and especially when you're dealing with a machine that if uh, that can be programmed to actually be hazardous, um, and so I, I I'll say this: while the code might not be open source, uh, we will specifically um, be giving users the ability to modify portions of the code or rule set um, as they see fit. While that will be, of course, restricted. Uh, it, it should allow more collaboration of, oh, my gosh, this is a great game, and we love almost all the rules that, but, oh man, there's a few things that deeper didn't get right. So let us, you know, switch a couple things around here, and it'll be that much better. We would like, you know, the users to have that sort of say is to tweak things uh, as they see fit to try to have, you know, experience that makes most, uh, most, the most sense to them. Okay, so there'll be some sort of tool that a user will be able to use to make rule modifications within the the constraints that are necessary to protect the systems, protect the licenses, and so forth. It'll be even better than that, but yes. Okay. Let's go ahead and move over into hardware then. Um, I, I was curious, is the are the systems, are they going to be, are they going to be board-based or, or PC-based or something else? Um, I think there'll be a lot of familiarity with the way that we're going to design um, the, the hardware. But I think it will be our own unique take. What we've tried to do is create the deep root standard. 
um, just as you know, other manufacturers have created their own standard to um, lower costs uh, and to unify that amongst all different titles over you know a number of years. And so it'll be easier for not only us internally, uh, the lower the cost of manufacturing, the lower the sales price to um, to you know people buying the machines, but it'll also hopefully lower maintenance uh, and uh, not only cost but maintenance time as well. So um, we are trying to stay away from the PC approach that I know JJP has kind of gone, and even sort of the mini PC approach like Highway, um, but but still keep something powerful enough that we can run some some neat uh, audio and visual assets on the machine. Okay. Uh, in uh, in one of the This Week in Pinball interviews that you did, uh, you mentioned the, the plan was sort of the standard-sized uh, WMS-era games. Uh, I was curious if the intent from Deep Root is that all the cabinets will always be the same size or if you're considering wide-body machines or everything's just going to be be standardized because we see, we see both approaches from different manufacturers. Some seem to vary it and some st- or stay consistent on the cabinet size. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think cabinet size is pretty much at this point kind of um, very different from manufacturer to manufacturer. You know, JGP is more wide-body wide only. Stern has their own unique take. It's not quite the Williams Valley. Spooky, I think, is still using the Williams Valley. Uh, I, I really haven't looked at, at highways, so I'm not sure what, what sizing they're using. Ours will be very similar to Williams Valley size. It's not going to be small zizzle games. I'll just, I've tried to give hints, but I'll just say it out right now. Um, they're going to be pinball machines, fully functional pinball machines as people know them. It's just going to look and act differently. Um, and so as a result, um, the sizing might be a little off, but what we've tried to do as we've redesigned the pinball machine from the ground up is to try to, to make it so if it's in a lineup with other pinball machines from different eras, that it won't look out of place. Okay. So in terms of, you mentioned the maintenance and how much easier it should be on the deep root machines versus what people in the pinball hobby are currently used to. I was curious in terms of things like mechs and mech sizes, one of the ongoing challenges, especially with some of the more boutique manufacturers that have been on the knife's edge, so to speak, financially, has been whether or not parts will be available if they did not use traditional parts like Williams parts. So I wondered if, if the goal here with Deep Root is they're, they're going to use standardized parts, if you're going to be using customized parts, or the technologies you're exploiting are such that there's an expectation that you don't really need to find new parts. So we've, when we first started, um, we, our goal was to try to use as many parts that have been outstanding, not just Williams Valley, but you know some of the Mid East or even Stern, et cetera, parts that are publicly available just because um, we wanted to make sure that we were reinventing the wheel to the point of creating not only problems for us and redesigning, you know, a lot of these parts, but also that people could get their hands on those parts. You know, we one of these days, you know, we're in the pinball business anymore and we're, we're doing them. Um, I've offered uh, a couple of parts distributors. Uh, the uh, the exclusive opportunity to um, to warehouse and sell um, deep root parts because we don't want to be in the parts business. Um, those talks are still ongoing. Uh, I think that that's a much better option for us than having and and controlling all those parts in house um, for for either people that want to put those parts in their own homebrew project or they need replacement parts for our machines. 
our warranties will be better than anyone else in the industry by multiples. So I really, we're trying to do everything very, very rugged uh, as we can um, to make it safer for a home environment, um, and but still be, um, you know, still be pinball, still be those basic components everyone would be able to recognize. Now, in, ter- in terms of it still being pinball, um, this is my last hardware question, and you might you might not be able to answer it, but I was wondering on in terms of the play field, is it is it planned to be the traditional plywood, or are you are you going with an alternative material, which we we've seen from manufacturers in the past? So I will give a tease, and that is we're going to take a sledgehammer to a play field. If it leaves the market, does it ship? Well, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. Every, every play field leaving our facility that's put into a game will have a sledgehammer taken to it. And if it leaves a mark, it does not ship. Oh, well. That's the standard I've set. Okay. So that's what, it's your question, that's, that's what we're going to keep to. All right. Well, it's, 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 a, it's an easy standard to measure for people. So they'll, they'll have something to check against. Uh, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with dimples. I'm done with... Uh, on my own machines, and I'm done with the the substandards people have gotten used to for what should be one of the most uh, strongest and, and, and most important components of, of the pinball machine, and that is the play field. So that has been a passion of mine that that has to be right or or it doesn't ship. Okay. Well, now I, I just have some general generalized questions about deep deep root and the in the hobby in general. And I want to go back actually to your first interview with this week in pinball. Uh, there was a there was a quote that of course got got a lot of traction with people in terms of uh, we would love to make a Ferrari with Kia prices and Kia costs. And where I want to go with that is you know, the motto of deep root pinball, I believe, is every family needs a pinball, every pinball needs a family. And so in my take, in my view of, of the hobby, not in the manufacturing side, has been that the biggest challenge to growing pinball has always been the pricing. And it's too soon, I'm sure, to talk about pricing. But I, I'm curious about where you're seeing Deep Root enter in on the in the hobby. Like, is it going to be around the Stern Pro? Is that the market? Is the Stern Pro price point? Are you trying to undercut where Stern Pro is? Or is it more on the collector side where the JJPs and the highways, the more high-dollar companies, have chosen to stake their claim in terms of what market share they want? I think it would be very difficult for the other manufacturers to compete with us. Do you think that uh, that differential is more than more or less than 20%? I think that we will have a portfolio of machines that multiple price points, different features for each machine. As I've already said before, we will not do um, the multiple version of each title. There will only be one title, and the titles in our portfolio of games will be at different price points. Oh, okay. So you're you're gonna you see Deeproot having more variants than we see from the other manufacturers, just pin to pin because they'll be designed perhaps significantly differently from each other. Yes, I, I, I don't want to go into much more detail just from a competitive advantage, but it will be very difficult for even someone like a Stern to compete with what we're doing. And it actually has been a, a major selling point to licensors, uh, who, many of whom are no pinball, would like to do a pinball, uh, you know, title with their license but are don't really like the price points that other manufacturers are at so 
uh, that that's one been one of the easier things in, in, in the licensing talks is price points. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned already that the, the machines will be you know, full-featured machines. I, I'm curious, are all the models planned to be what I would call operator-ready in terms of they'll come with coin doors, the software's going to accommodate making money on location with audit tools and, and the like? So when we were redesigning the pinball machine from the ground up, there were only three... Um, <laughs> There were only three, you know, safe uh, items that we knew we were going to touch. So it had to have two flipper buttons. It had to have the general shape, and it had to have coin door. And um, so I, I think to answer your question, I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. Um, we, we have put a lot of effort into creating a machine that's not only tournament-friendly, but also owner-operator-friendly, uh, but more importantly, uh, to the standard of, of someone putting it in, into their house and being proud of, of having a deep root machine in their house. So, Now, in terms of when you when you go to market uh, for, for the sales of machines, are you planning to use the distributor model or are you going to be doing it direct? You know, that's always tough. You know, as, as some people have pointed out, Stern has, you know, the distributor model locked down and a couple other manufacturers have, you know, tried to... Um, tried to chip away at that and it you know with some success or not um i think that marketing is and actual distribution are one of those things that is just going to have to be organic with time um i think that we're trying to go into some markets that maybe some other pinball manufacturers haven't yet thought about or don't really care about and so um we're hoping that the the let's let's look at everything every option every possibility is going to be there we have not, and I'll just be honest, we have not had any distributors, well, maybe exceptional one, uh, reach out to us, um, and we're perfectly fine with that. Uh, you know, I, I think that we've, we have reached out to some unconventional um, types of distribution uh, opportunities, and we're going to be um, continuing to, to do so um, to look at getting deeper out there to the masses. And it's really about, you know, family and, and having families have that nostalgic, vintage American feel with a pinball machine in their house. Owner-operators, I think, will just come as, as they are. Um, and, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave the, the answer to that. Okay. Uh, given the resurgence that we've all seen in pinball's popularity over the last few years, uh, we're, we've entered a point, even before the announcement of Deep Root being on the scene, that a lot of those in the hobby feel that the manufacturing area is very crowded at this stage. We've got the long-running Stern Pinball. You've got Jersey Jack targeting the high-dollar market. We've got the boutique manufacturers of Multimorphic, Spooky, and American Pinball, and then the still-around-but-struggling Highway and Dutch. I'm curious, why why get in at all into pinball at this point in the hobby's uh, maturity and where you maybe see Deep Root being in five years after releasing, we'll measure it from after the first games are released, sort of where you see that Deep Root's place amongst the existing manufacturers or you even think they'll still be around? I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with other companies. All I know is what we're told behind the scenes as, you know, I know there's loose lips uh, with some of the people associated with us. And it's frustrating, but it is what it is. So I'm not going to, you know, speculate on, you know, secondhand information I've been given. Um, but we'll say this is that um, we, we've put a significant investment into this uh, and we're, we're here. 
we're going to make our splash, um, and we're going to stick with it. And while DeepRoot um, is a conglomerate of many different enterprises, uh, this pinball is a huge passion uh, for mine. I mean, I know when I when I built my collection and got back into pinball um, a couple of years ago, um, I knew this was something that I wanted to be a part of, and but I had to do it my way, and I had to, to do it the right way. And so it's taken time, of course, to... Uh, to play everything out, you know, things that I wanted to do at first didn't work out, and so you have to, you know, go back to the drawing board, um, look at what your strengths are and what you can bring, and is it still worth it? And we're here today because it is, and we think that we can bring a lot more excitement and passion to pinball rather than take it away. And so that's what we're here to do. All right. Uh, I've obviously, I've steered clear of really asking any questions about J-pop because it's a, it's a personnel matter. And so I don't, you know, normally the, the answers are, will be, you can't, you won't be able to talk about it. Uh, but I do want to ask about something tying to him relating to your latest This Week in Pinball interview, where you announced all these other exclusive arrangements. You have, you have Osler, you have Norris, you have Nordman. These are big names uh, that people who are fans of pinball from the 90s or 80s should know, and they all have very unique styles of design. Um, I mean, just looking at it now, having if you had you gone public with just those three names, that would have been a hydrogen bomb on the hobby already, just because of their their pedigree. But adding in J-pop adds adds in all this, in my view, adds in all this headache because it meant you had to tackle the Zidware customer issue and the blowback from the hobbyists who are upset about Zidware. So I'm. I'm curious why, what's, what's the view in terms of why was it more advantageous to involve J-pop than just going forward with these other designers? So um, that, that's a hard one to, to answer. Um, a lot of these designers that we have now were either not available at the time when we needed to start you know, doing our design process you know, uh, a little under a year ago. Um, and I don't know if I really, if I really wanted them. We were trying to get new blood. I mean, I, I've mentioned someone else that I, I reached out to, which I really have a lot of respect for their work. There's, there's, you know, another one that I have a lot of respect for his work, but, you know, he's, both of them have said that, you know, it's just, just not their cup of tea. And so, you know, we, we started designing by ourselves. And what we found in working with J-Pop is he's just, I, I think, I think there's a, a we're, we live in a very caustic environment these days where I think things are taken to the ends of the spectrums. Um, and so while there's animosity about J-pop, J-pop's the guy that I, I have a friendship with. I hug him when he comes. I hug him when he goes away. I, I love, uh, and goes back up to Illinois, I, I, I love his family. I think that he really made a lot of stupid decisions and mistakes. Um, and unfortunately, I think that the, the blowback from that um, is is not in comparison to what was actually done. So I would I would challenge the notion that J-Pop, while he did come with challenges, and those challenges have been very frustrating, mainly because we, we had a breach of confidence uh, back in September. Uh, I think things would have been very different had that not happened. But anyway, um, I, I'm... While it's challenging, I'm not upset about any of the blowback from J-Pop. J-Pop's best work is in front of him. I, I see him behind the scenes and no one else does. And you have to realize none of the other designers 
have said anything negative because they like to work with him too. I mean, he is a fun, engaging guy to work with. He's extremely creative. I mean, blows me away on, on many things. He, he stands up for, for what he believes, but if, you know, you tell him, hey, look, we got to change this, you know, and you give him a good reason, he'll, he'll say, okay, let's do that. So he's really good in the collaborative environment. I think the closed-door competitive environment at Williams Valley was probably not the best environment for a guy like, you know, John. Um, but in the more collaborative nature, what we're doing here, I mean, I've seen other designers just sit there and they, they've just done some amazing work together, just talking back and forth with ideas. And so I, I really don't see John bringing on John as a challenge. Now, dealing with the big megaphones out there, especially with people who have no, um, no interest whatsoever in the Zidware mess, um, I, I think it's, yeah, that's, that's the challenging part because, you know, you want to ride the fine line of, pushing back but not being disagreeable, and that's been very hard. I think the Zidware customers, um, with the exception of the plaintiffs, of course, which that's a whole nother matter, but the Zidware customers have been overwhelmingly in private very supportive. Um, you've seen a lot of them not go online, and I, I'm very appreciative for that because um, I think that no matter the very few people that have just nothing but negative things to say about Deepfruit or about John or about Zidware. Um, I, I think that that's very, very isolated, right? But it's the loudest thing right now. I think when we finally get Zidware customers taken care of um, very soon and we get John's games out there, people have a chance to play them and, and love them for what they are, I think that a lot of this will just be history. Um, and even if it's not for some people, then... Um, we, we, we don't want your business. You know, it's just, you know, we want people to buy our machines who love to play our machines. And so if you're not one of them, then, um, there's other manufacturers that you can go buy machines from. That's, that's really how I feel about it. I'm a little curious. Uh, this, this goes back into the Wayback machine, but, uh, if I remember, uh, in one of the threads involving Zidware on Pinside, around when Pentasia sort of stepped in, I wanted to think that there were some posts from the Deep Root account. Did, did you all consider intervening back then? Yeah, absolutely. So we were trying to work with, uh, Charlie and Spooky. That was right when Americans Most Haunted had taken off. I spent tens of hours and tens of thousands of dollars working with Spooky, trying to, you know, um, over many, many months, trying to see if, you know, we could come to terms on working together. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, Charlie had a very different vision, and he's, he's done well with it. So I, I really respect him, and, uh, and you know, I'm glad that he's been able to, to do something no one else has been able to do in pinball uh, when, in comparison to, you know, you know Stern or even JJP. As far as J-Pop um, during that period, I, I did go meet with J-Pop. I was very interested in working with J-Pop. However, I don't think John at that point had hit rock bottom. And I, I don't think that he had at that point, you know, the humility that needed to be there to make changes that needed to be made. And he was working with, uh, I'll just call this person a um, behind-the-scenes mentor slash confidant that was very disruptive. And so um, I got very frustrated with the situation because of that. And so I backed off. So I, I let everyone, you know, kind of know um, that's what the case was. And there were a couple, you know, messages that I had. And 
I knew that, you know, the, the Fantasia thing was going to fall apart. I, I knew that there had to be some things that had to happen before, you know, the Zidware customers were going to be able to be um, made whole. And then, of course, AP wasn't going to be that, that option, too. And they, they bailed on him the second there was any disagreement. And that's the difference with us. It doesn't matter how many people hate us because of J-pop or want to, with their, you know, megaphones in a small industry here, uh, try to take us down because of that. We've made our decision. We're sticking with the decision. We're going to make this happen. And there's nothing they can do about it other than just to be shown for what they are at the end of the day. All right. I only have one last question. It's one of the more fun category questions. I was just curious, uh, who would you say is the uh, the greatest living pinball designer? Retired or working, it doesn't matter. I'm just curious. <laughs> well, I've got several designers now uh, that are being paid a lot of money. Uh, I know, so you're going you're gonna to upset will... all but one of them. <laughs> um, I don't know, I could probably... Tell everyone's uh, vision of me as being ego, uh, you know, as an egomaniacal, uh, you know, narcissist, and say that I'm the greatest pinball designer ever. Um, but I think that would that would fit a lot with pinball because everyone in pinball thinks they're an expert and they're the best ever. Whatever <laughs> the current conversation, is. if well, I would fit in with Surf and, and Jack and, and everyone on Pinside, right? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the hobby can be a bit toss, bit caustic. It is caustic, and I, I find it very funny that people blame Deep Root, and Deep Root's just the people, you know, where, where people are ganging up today. Everyone in pinball, everyone has gone through what we're going through now, and in fact, I'm actually a little grateful that it isn't as bad as it's been with other things. And so, you know, if Stern gets a break from everyone complaining about, you know, the quality of their stuff or incomplete code, or Jack gets a break from this crazy prices and stuff like that, uh, then, you know, I can give you, you know, you know, you're welcome, right? Um, so I'll, I'll take the heat for now, knowing that there will be a day where that will change. So, so back to your question. Most of my personal collection are late 80s and early 90s Williams Valley games. Oh, okay. I would have to say, I would have to say J-Pop. His designs speak more to me than any other, but I will say recently I've been on Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I don't know why such a simple game with you know music that really gets on your nerves really drives me to play it over and over again. Um, but, you know, I, I go more for not the designer. I go more for what, you know, what's my passion today, you know? I mean, everyone who comes into a pinball collection, I know a lot of other people can commiserate, ask, you know, what's your favorite? And it's like asking, which child is your favorite, right? It's just, it changes over time. You know, certain machines speak to you in different ways. I like to play one machine just because of the better rule set. I like to play another machine because of the light animation, like, Circus Voltaire is absolutely gorgeous, right? Almost up there with Magic Girl. Um, and But it's a little one-dimensional to play. So that's a hard one. I appreciate the question. It was a good question. But I, at least with, the, with as good as answers I can give you, is probably overall I, I enjoy J-Pop's, um, all of J-Pop's design more than any, anyone else. So That's fair enough. Well, those were all my questions, I guess. Uh, before I let you go, if you have questions for me, I'm more than happy to try and answer them. Yeah, so um, I don't know if I have a question at all for you. I really appreciate uh, you know you being willing to, to do this interview. Uh, I know that, uh, that uh, there are other podcasts out there um, that, that constantly talk about you know promising to come on and never came on or were too scared to come on. 
I don't think it has anything to do with that. What I really like about you and Tony is that y'all are very fair. You're very thorough. And I'm, I'm personally very appreciative of that because at the end of the day, I remember commenting to Jeff um, over at uh, This Week in Pinball about, you know, I called him the media. And he was like, oh, well, I'm not a media. I'm just a guy with a website. And you probably say, I'm, hey, you know, we're just guys with a small podcast. But pinball is small. I mean, you, you are the media. And so um, some, some of these podcasts and, and you know, online sources, um, they they act like media and very professional, and then others don't. And so I'm very appreciate, appreciative for the hard work that you put in. That's that's uh, that's unpaid and probably well deserved. Um, that that you you know you do what you do, and I'm very appreciative of that. So well, thank you very much. I, I can't attest it to anything other than it's just this. It's probably the pers- our personalities. Just Tony and I have this personality approach, and so when I do interviews, I do them in the way that I always wanted to listen to them or read them. So that's just sort of the, the structure I've done yours up the same way I do any of the others where I write up all my questions. You know, I have ones that I don't think will get answered, but it's, it's just what I think is interesting to hear about. So. So if we have a minute or two um, sure. left, how about you ask the most important question that you didn't think I would answer and see if I'll answer it. Oh gosh. Okay. The one I did drop one off the list as we were going along. And, uh, the, the one I, the one I had, uh, was, I'll, I'll read it specifically from my notes and it's, you've stressed innovation quite a bit as one of the key elements to the deep root strategy. Can you cite a particular example, such as a mech modification or design change? Yes. Um, we talked about a little bit of that code and a little about, a little bit about the design. Have you ever seen minority report? Oh yes. Tom Cruise is like moving things around with his hands. So when all the guys came in, I told them that's what I wanted. And they all laughed at me and said, that's not possible. And I told them, it's going to be done, and I want to see a prototype in 30 days. And that's sort of the, the culture we have here. Nothing's impossible. I mean, if I told them I want the pinball machine to float like Han Solo, you know, kind of uh, carbonite thing in, in Empire Strikes Back, I expect the guys to do it. And so there are no no's at deep root. Uh, everything is on the table and we have the ability to do some of the most amazing things that some of these other companies never even thought possible and let alone, you know, pinball fanatic as well. So, um, couple of hints there and, uh, we'll leave it at that. Okay. So if, if you thought if a lay person were to see a deep root machine and I would say currently in the realm of physical pinball, the most, what most people would identify technologically, uh, is the most out there in terms of what it's done for pinball from what it has been in this sort of purely mechanical form would be the, the P3 system for multimorphic. Do you think the average person would think there is more innovation in the deep root machine? I don't think Jerry's machine is very innovative. Uh, and Jerry, uh, Jerry and I have had a lot of private conversations, so he, he will know that that's not an insult. It's just my personal opinion. Um, putting a, a video screen and doing some of the things he's done, which is way over engineering and creating a bomb cost that's crazy, crazy high. It's just, that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to, dr- look, pinball and video games have been kind of, on parallel paths for a long time. You know, pinball didn't want to be video games. The video games didn't want to be pinball. And as you get closer to synergizing those, the question is, is can it still be pinball? And, and would people still recognize it as pinball? 
And so when I look at, you know, like, um, like Google Arcade on iPhone and I look at the virtual tables or I look at something like P3, I don't consider those pinball. It's more video gamey, right? What we wanted to do with DeepRoot is to go toward the video game, but just do it with some finesse and some creativity where we're not going that far that direction, too far that direction, that we wanted to keep pinball what it is. People love bashing crap with a silver ball, right? Oh, yeah. It's fun. And so we wanted to keep that basic thing. So, no, there won't be huge LCD screens under our, our play fields or as the play field underneath the glass. Um, people will see it for, for the pinball that they love and cherish. All right. We'll leave it at that. Thanks again, Robert, for coming right. on to the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dennis. Take care, and hopefully we'll do this again. All right. Sounds good. Well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, uh, hopefully you enjoyed the interview. It revealed a lot of interesting information. Tony, since you didn't get to participate during the interview itself, let's let you kick the ball off here. Um, let's do our analysis like we would with any other news piece. What did you think, or where do you want to begin? Um, the best place to begin, Let, I'm just going to go ahead and start down. I took some notes when I listened to it after you guys finished it. And <clears throat> I thought the whole licensing issue, uh, thing where he, he was talking about how they were coming back. Well, so this other company came in, I think it's interesting to see, uh, just a slight peek behind the curtain on how something like that's working at that level and to actually have somebody come out and go, well, I know we've been talking to you, but yeah, that was, that was a, a curious thing. It also made me think, you know, back on our last episode when Steve was on and we were talking about why hasn't Stern done a Tron vault edition. And you brought up that you thought it had to be a licensing challenge. And I thought that has to be easy. That can't be the problem. You know, maybe I'm once again wrong and that it really could be a difficulty with dealing with Disney. Um, even if they have an established relationship. So, so yeah, that was an interesting curtain peak. Um, I think what I'm going to bring up now is one of the early elements that I, I focused in on. And it was one where when I got suggested questions, most of them came in regards to software. And we obviously had quite a bit of a discussion with Steve about the concern that there wasn't a lead rules guy. And so there were a couple of takeaways I had from the interview. The first was the idea of divorcing the programmer from being the rules expert. I actually think that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really considered it because it does seem like the programmers, by and large, are the rules guys at this point. I know back with Premiere, John Norris did do a lot of the rules development. I don't know if he coded it as well or not. He may have. I just don't remember. But I know he was responsible for developing a lot of the rules, at least in a preliminary fashion, for most of the games he designed. Uh, so that part made sense to me, but I'm still really unclear about the software no yeah it was it, it was clear as mud to me i mean it's still murky about how it's going to actually play out um i think it's going to be something that we're just going to have to wait and see and i think until we actually see it it's going to be everybody's question it's one of my number one questions and concerns going into it is well what does this actually mean and how is this actually going to work right and with robert's insistence that it will it will come across as very obvious that why why hasn't it been developed before once they reveal what they're willing to reveal that's why i as i rack my brain i'm feeling dumb because i can't come up 
on everything, like on the mechanics and stuff, I have ideas on how they can pull off what they what they are alluding to. I'm not figuring it out on the software, but I do think it will probably be comforting, at least to a lot of tournament players, with the notion that they do want to bring in high caliber, high ranked players to test out the games before they're released. So that does suggest that whatever they're planning to do, it will pass some sort of smell test. So, but I understand that they didn't want to reveal a lot because they're, they're not to that point in the marketing yet to do their unveiling, which ties into the whole five days of deep root and everything. But it was the software is where I remain the most murky. Uh, did you have another category or, or section you wanted to bring up? Um, I was impressed by the concept of being able to take a sledgehammer to a play field. The reality of it. I don't know what I don't even know what it, it ha- has to be made out of that can take that kind of uh, impact with no damage of any way, shape, or form. <clears throat> it's one of those things that seems like, well, this is a lofty goal that I can understand everybody liking, but the reality, but how does it work in reality? Like a lot of these things, it's like this sounds really good, and I could see where this could be good if it can actually happen because. It doesn't seem possible to me. Well, it, I, yeah, I think one of the things I was contemplating, uh, with just all this, all the discussion in the past with the this weekend pinball interviews that we have linked and every element that's sort of been discussed about what the, what the deep root plan might be has been. And it's why I'm, that was my favorite question was asked about the, the play field one. And it's one that, that I came up with based off of the thought that they must be compl- considering alternative materials and one of the things that i've thought about for quite a while was i've been a bit surprised that they've stuck with plywood for so long now and there were experiments with plastics uh but i don't think they were ever cost effective but i think all those experiments were in the 80s and then of course there were different like european manufacturers had different coatings that they put on top of their play fields that account for why the art holds up so well even though they weren't cleared so, I mean, I don't know some sort of, but I mean, when you think about, well, what can, what could get hit with a sledgehammer and not leave a mark, uh, a, a firm rubber could, I suppose there's some sort of composite. I, I'm not an pl- expert on plastics, but they have advanced quite a bit. So versus what we had in the eighties. So I'm guessing something, something probably synthetic along those lines, but will still allow a ball to roll, but we're getting beyond, yeah, my, beyond my wheelhouse, yeah. obviously. I mean, we're, that's moving into an engineering question, and I, I, I really have no idea how that is going to work. I'm, I'm like you, and with their whole their their whole special factory assembly thing and everything, it it, it leads me to wonder more and more if we're not looking into something like uh, some some of the new resins or epoxy type things that have been becoming more and more available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another element that I thought w- was pretty interesting was uh, on innov- the innovations uh, and not it being so much that video game style, which I know is something that we were discussing at, at one point. In mind, I don't think it was on the podcast. I think we were just talking about concepts and thought, well, maybe it's more in the vein of the, of the P3 system. And based off of the, really the last question I asked, 
uh, Robert really insisted that they don't see that P3 model as the direction they want to, to want pinball to go in, that that's too much in that video game realm. And that they're looking to innovate in a more mechanical fashion was how I took it. Yeah, I took that the exact same way as just how they're aiming. I don't know. It seems like they're very, oh, what's the best way to put it? Um, they have a very firm idea of what it should be in their mind. And I just think that we're not necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily something that is going to be well translated until somebody actually sees it. I mean, this could actually be one of those things that where once you see it, you just slap your forehead and like, Oh, okay. Everything they said makes sense. But as of now, everything's just like, uh, I don't see it. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. And, and I, and I think, I'm, I, my, my sense has been from, from the interview that that's probably going to be the slap the forehead moment on the software, but perhaps not on the hardware because they, they are indicating that aside from some basics like the coin door, the dimensions of the machine and such, that it is a ground up redesign. So it, it, I mean, if they follow through on all of that, it should be, I think, significantly different than what we're used to. So in that case, I, I won't feel like, oh, duh, it'll, it'll be more like, oh, interesting. And then maybe if it's if it's fun and it works, then people might then go and say, OK, OK, why? Why haven't we seen innovation like that before? But we'll, we'll have to see on that. Uh, we did, of course, have a have a discussion on pricing. That was another element I wanted to try and hone in on. Even though, until you have a game out, I think it's it's very difficult to to get pricing out of out of anyone unless they've already been manufacturing. But you know, as you know, as list longtime listeners know, I've harped on the issue that I think the problem with growing on the collector side of pinball has been the pricing side and that all these manufacturers are coming in at a way too high of a price point. So they're all fighting over the same piece of pie instead of going where there still could be growth. But that would be around Stern Pro and below. That's why I asked the, and I realized when I listened back after I finished the interview and was editing it, that maybe some people didn't understand when I asked about the Stern Pro pricing and he indicated that there would be a range and that they would be competitive my question about 20%. What I was, why I said that number specifically is if you were to reduce a Stern Pro price point by 20%, that would be about a thousand dollars. It'd be a little over a thousand dollars. So I was fishing to see if they thought their machine would be at least a thousand dollars less than Stern Pro. It sounded to me that the answer was it depends on the machine. Yeah, it did really come off that since they're not going to do versions of the machines, it's just each individual machine is going to be its own thing that we will have to see there uh, how it goes. So maybe this specific machine is a lower-end machine with lower-end options, and it'll be at the bottom, obviously. And then there's another machine that's a completely different theme that is a fancier setup that'll be more. That's how it came off to me. Right, I, I agree. And that that is very different than what we see from everyone else. Everyone else seems to, you know, the price is basically they have concepts, and then, but the new machines are always around, you know, they're like in tiers. Yeah, every they do the okay. This machine we want the 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 pro tier, the premium tier, the LE tier. Where this seems to be much more uh, almost like they're going with okay. 
here is our planned percentage markup that we're going to use on every machine. So what does it cost to build blank machine? Throw the markup on it. That's what that machine costs. What does it cost to build this machine? Throw the markup on it. That's what this machine will cost. Right. Because even the manufacturers that don't do the multiple flavors of machines, all their machines are priced around the same price point. So they all exist on a single tier. But this sounds pretty different from that. The the final item I thought that we could discuss was was at the end when I went ahead and, and at, at his behest asked that question about trying to get a specific innovative concept. And he threw out a couple of, of examples. Uh, again, they were they were descriptive but vague in terms of uh, the idea of like the the GUI system at the start of Minority Report where Tom Cruise is is trying to direct all the the bust, so to speak, that he's trying to execute as the law enforcement officer. And then the Han Solo carbonite floating as Bubba Fett pushes it to slave one and trying to incorporate things like that into a machine and that, that their philosophy is that it's all possible. Um, I of course had a, had and have a very hard time imagining exactly how that is in a pinball machine. Maybe not so much the Minori Report thing with the, you know, if you were to integrate like a VR or motion detection, you know, connect style. I could see something like that. Not quite sure on the, on the floating thing, but with enough magnets, I suppose anything's possible. I guess I honestly, I took that whole thing more as a, uh, generalized philosophy slash idea over being a direct comment. It was more of a, a whole we if this is what we want this is what we're going for i mean like the 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 magnet thing i could see the gooey thing i could see but i don't i can't for myself see where it would something like the gooey would fit in a pinball machine if i mean if you're throwing in the the sensors like some of the newer dance arcades that are coming out of japan have so i have to move my hands above the field in certain ways to do certain things um how is that traditional pinball with, and how is that working type thing? Yeah. Uh, but is it, is it any more dramatically distracting? And some people would say it's just as dramatically uh, distracting, I assume, uh, as the action button on the Stern games. You guys smack that action button. Guys shoot them tie fighters. Smack, smack. And I miss, uh, I, I, and I miss the action buttons all the time. Because I don't even notice them half the time, and I lose a lot of points because of it. Um, but no, you could be right. It could be, it could be very a similar. I mean, not similar, but the the whole interaction could be another level of play. It's just, I don't know. I think it's something that without actually seeing something, I can't. And th- this seems to be what I got out of the interview overall was that okay, this is a good discussion, but without actually seeing any of this stuff, it just sounds like wishful thinking, dream, interesting stuff. It's too vague. I Even now, I still think most of it's too vague for me to have a really good feel for anything other than we have big dreams, we have big ideas, and we know in-house it'll work. And once you see it, you'll know that it'll work. But for now, 
we're just in the dark. Right. I, I agree. And I don't, these weren't, these were examples of ideas. I didn't, I didn't interpret them as a, they're going to do a Star Wars machine or they're going to do a minority report machine. No, but, no, no. I didn't, I didn't take it the, that way either. I just thought of they were kind of ideas for, like I said, it was like an idea type thing. It's like we want to strive for something. Right. Hi- highlight the bo- highlighting the boldness kind of to me it right. was it was reminiscent of the old how atari supposedly was when they'd all go and the the designers would all get in the hot tub and, and get a little stoned and then that's where all their ideas came from in the 70s for their arcade games was that and it was just sort of seen as this ultra creative there were no limits in the hot tub anything was possible uh, <laughs> sort of it was a it was a strange time at atari or so i've read but um I didn't know if you, if there was any other elements, takeaways. Yeah, I think, uh, there was, especially on the hardware side, I, I, I walked away feeling I have a better understanding, but still a lot of, a lot of, I mean, in terms of like, it, it's more conventional than I was, my mind was taking me in the sense that it's more, I shouldn't say conventional. I should say mechanical. It's more mechanical than where my mind was going based off of the information we had seen thus far. But like you, until, we really reach the point where they're unveiling something. It's really hard to reconcile all of it into how we're going to actually see it as a machine that's playable and won't break down and, and actually would be at a competitive price point. It's just a lot without, there's just too many unknown variables for me to make it work. So, but it's, I mean, the obviously as we've always gotten the impression from the other written interviews, uh, it's, it's clearly staking out a very bold path. Um, it's difficult to see how it works, but, and you know, obviously Robert knows that and he under, he keeps indicating that he doesn't expect people to get it until they show it. And obviously this interview happened before they're ready to show it. Uh, I'm hoping we at least shed a little bit of light on some of the stuff that was confusing. Uh, but I think we'll always be confused until after their, uh, their marketing event. Yeah. I think that. Until we see that, that's exactly how it's going to be. I will say one thing for certain is they have no lack of self-confidence and they have no lack of drive from the discussions. Yeah. Nope. There, Robert is, uh, is very sure that, that it will be groundbreaking. So he stuck by that with us. Uh, I thought, uh, I thought it came across in a, more understandable manner, I think verbally versus how, how in writing sometimes thing, things can be, but it was obviously, uh, you know, the, the note that he, he's talked with Jerry with P3 before as an example, and that Jerry, he, he doesn't view that as innovation in the hobby. He just views that as a, a video game meeting, a pinball machine, more so than an actual groundbreaking concept, but that what they're working on at Deep Root should be definable, he thinks, by anyone is groundbreaking. So. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's definitely that's bold. That's interesting and is very, yeah, it's very bold. Very, very bold. Yep. Well, obviously, we'll keep an eye on it, just like we keep an eye on all the manufacturers. But uh, thanks again to Robert for coming on. We do appreciate it. And uh, I think we can go to our next pinball topic. And that's, right. that's the shame tournament, Tony. We're, we're ready. Shame. We're ready to, to get into the finals. This is there it. There is. There is shame in the shame tournament. I mean, seriously. No, no. There is shame. No. So, round three results. Real quickly. Bally Game Show. It beat Genie with 81.8% of the vote. Totally deserved by Genie. Now that I've actually played Game Show, I really... Game Show's actually pretty fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's just, Genie's just so awful. It should never have been submitted. But hey, what, what can I do? I, I'm just, I just, I just host. I don't, I don't make the rules. Actually, I made the rules, but, uh, and then Big Brock Hunter Pro, it took out Sharky Shootout. Much closer though, 54.5%. No, that's a shame. I like Sharkies. Yeah. Well, I thought maybe having Steve on would have helped sway the audience because he clearly favored Sharkies over Big Buck Hunter. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about it, but I guess Steve just doesn't have the influence I was counting on. So here we are. The final matchup is the Bally Game Show versus Big Buck Hunter Pro. Uh, any predictions, Tony, on how it's going to end? I no. Oh, I for me it's e- I'm going to vote Game Show, and I think Big Buck Hunter Pro is going to win. There, easy. See how easy that was. Okay. Well, yeah. That's just, yeah. Big no, Buck Hunter Pro actually, is I'm from 2010. It's got deeper rules, and that's going to carry it. So. But I'm not going to vote for it. It's that deer doesn't ever work. I'm not voting for it. <laughs> I'm sorry. It just doesn't work. But and game show, broadly speaking, is one of the less like system 11s, even though I like it uh, quite a bit more than I thought I would after trying it. Yeah. OK, next. Primo. Yeah, that was quick. So anyway, uh, vote a link in the show notes to the vote. Go vote. And then we'll announce the results on our on our next episode. Uh, next topic. Real brief one. Total nuclear annihilation. You like it? I like it. Apparently, everyone likes it. Uh, Spooky Pinball has announced that sales of TNA have now passed the 300 count, thus making it their best-selling game of all time. I thought. I thought. I thought there were 350 of Rob Zombie. No, 300. 300 of Rob Zombie, and 50 okay. of them, I believe, were Ellie's. Maybe that's what. Maybe that's what was messing with my head. Yeah, and I and I'm not even certain on the LE thing, but but yeah, they so I think it was sometime last week they announced that Unit 301 had been sold, obviously not manufactured yet, but that put them past uh, that threshold, so it, it has set a new record for them, and I I'm not surprised. I'm still going to stick by that I I'm skeptical that they'll get halfway to the to the least sold street level. I'm going to commit on that still, which would be just over 400 units, but. Uh, I, Hey, I'm more than happy to be proved wrong. It's a, it's a fun game. I just think, uh, even with the, they're going to get around to more shows that should get them more sales, but at the price point, uh, that it sits at. And when people look at it, that's just uh, a lot of people. I don't think will try it, unfortunately. And so our their loss, yeah, that's their loss, but uh, you know, on the flip side, they might not be able to, uh, to justify the expense because you can get a, any Stern pro for, with, with shipping uh, about a thousand less and that's you know that's a lot of bread so that's always going to be a challenge but hey that's pinball so speaking of pinball final pinball topic uh oktoberfest uh from my way i understand it uh martin who's one of the hosts with head-to-head pinball they he was researching trademarks and he found out that american pinball has a trademark for an oktoberfest pinball machine now, I want to go ahead and note, this is not a confirmation that Oktoberfest is going to be their next game, nor is it even a confirmation that Oktoberfest will ever be made. They just have the trademark. That said, what do you think about the theme, Tony? I, it, it's beer? I guess, I mean, that makes sense. Well, G- Gary Stern something. at Expo did say pinball plus beer equal dollar signs. So has Stern given some tips to American Pinball? Did they <laughs> interpret that very literally? It, it, it's entirely possible. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see, like, I mean, when I think Oktoberfest, I think, you know, weird German costumes and huge tankards of beer. And I don't know how that works into a pinball machine. No, I think this is terrible. I think this is an absolutely <laughs> awful idea. And I ask that you not do it. <laughs> I, I, no, I mean, whose most favorite holiday is Oktoberfest? Not even alcoholics will pick that. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's so German and it's, you know, so I'm thinking, yeah, you've got like leader in, you've got, Blonde women carrying giant tankards of beer, and there's probably some sausages on the table. And okay, so uh, I'm just trying to think. It's just sort of like, gosh, who's my favorite holiday is Oktoberfest? Said no one ever. I mean, St. <laughs> Patrick's Day would be a better pick if you wanted a beer driven holiday. You could do that. I, yeah, I just, I, I mean, Houdini, while it doesn't resonate with me, that's a really good theme. And yeah, I, see, it, that, yeah, and that's the thing. These are all themes. They're themes. They're just not licensed. So I, I get it. Oktoberfest is very recognizable. So I see where it's got the name recognition thing. Uh, I'm sure there's a way you can integrate it into a pinball machine. I just I don't see it getting anyone excited. It's like Lederhosen and multi ball. I, I no. <laughs> <laughs> the accordion is lit. Shoot it. No. No. <laughs> I don't even know these things are associated with art. I'm just, I'm trying, I'm giving it things. It's just, uh, you know, another, uh, to me, if you're going to do things like, if you're going to do themes that don't have licenses, then it makes sense to stick with, you know, the, the stuff that's really recognizable, but also it easily integrates and that people might have a, an interest in like mythological characters and, and things on that line. That's why Houdini works is because people know him. And even if you don't like or know Houdini, if you like magic, it works for you. I, I guess if you like beer, Oktoberfest could work for you, even if you don't like Oktoberfest. But it's not like Pabst sold gangbusters for Stern. So I, anyway, I was. Yeah, star. and Pabst had a really, really good art package. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, no, I, I don't think much of this theme, but naturally, uh, as you know, I'm not particularly theme driven. If the gameplay is good, then I, I think the pinball ma- machine deserves to do well. Um, but, uh, you know, this wouldn't make me open my wallet I, just I, off the announcement. No, no, I think it would be a, a horrible shame if an Oktoberfest game came out and the soundtrack did not include the beer barrel polka. That would be <laughs> a travesty on top of a travesty. Now, would that require paying a license? I don't know anything about this polka. Since it's a polka, um, I'm assuming it not because who cares except you. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's old. I don't know. Oh, how, I don't know how old it is. I I know it's old. Okay, well they could probably do it on a keyboard. Yeah, MIDI style, System Eleven style. <laughs> well, uh, that's it for pinball. So let's go ahead and we do have a couple video game topics we wanted to cover this episode. Uh, and the first one I know you you noted, and one I mentioned in the intro was Overwatch League. And for those listening or th- who are already starting to turn off their turn off the podcast and be like, oh, they're going to go into a big digression into the specifics of overwatch we're not it's not what this one's going to be about we're not going to talk about the gameplay itself no this this is actually going to be primarily our thoughts on the overwatch league and how they're handling uh competitive overwatch so you want to go ahead and just sort of summarize what it is and what it what it means for esports yeah the overwatch league is blizzard's new push into the esports 
uh, scene, and they have taken a page from all of the actual reality sports thing and uh, linked teams to cities. And they've tried to create brands around different teams specifically uh, to kind of generate the kind of feelings that you don't get. I mean, it's different when you're, you know, when you're cheering for, for the London Spitfire and then when you're cheering for, you know, Joe Bob's rack em up team or, or cloud nine or the immortals. I mean, this is the same thing. And most of those teams that have been around in the, the competitive scene, uh, of overwatch and other games. Cause a lot of these teams have competitive teams in all sorts of games. Um, they just transition their core teams into these teams based around cities. And, I'll be honest, I think it's a genius idea. I I like it. I like where it's going. I don't like how it's been executed so far. And some of that is just because it's very new and they couldn't do it. They couldn't roll it all out in the way that I think they think it will ultimately be. But so there I, I guess in terms of so broadly speaking, I think it's a great idea. So let me I don't wanna I don't wanna poo-poo it too much <laughs> and, and and make it sound like, oh, he hates Overwatch. Like, no, I'm watching Overwatch League all the time. I like it. Uh, the, the things, the issues that I have with it, the first one, which I know is one that they plan to address is everything is actually taking place in LA. So right. the, it's cities on paper. It's so it's meaningless right now. There's no real connection unless you choose to feel a connection. So for example, I cheered on, I suppose if I were to pick a team, uh, I mean, and I did, if I'm picking a team, I picked New York Excelsior because I lived in New York at one point. So, and they lost and they lost, but because they, <laughs> because they, because they chose to keep using a dive system with a Genji that doesn't know how to play. But I said we weren't going to go into the specifics. So I'm not going to explain. <laughs> it was completely predictable why they threw that away and Libero should be ashamed of himself. That said, the in addition go spitfire this yeah well and that's the other thing there's also and i'm this bugs me only because i'm coming off of watching overwatch's world cup which was very country oriented and it gets really confusing because they're not based in the cities themselves and also because they brought in already existing teams london spitfire is an entirely south korean team new york excelsior is an entirely south korean team and seoul south korea's team is entirely South Korean. So then you look at something like the Dallas Fuel, which has one American and is mostly Europeans, but also has Thai and South Korean players. So it gets a little confusing because in a way you're looking at it and you see something like Seoul Dynasty, Shanghai Dragons, and Shanghai's up until, well, they brought in some outside people now, but they started with entirely Chinese base. And you start to think, is this like the Olympics? Are these national teams? And it's like, no, no, because half the players are Korean. And it's like, oh, okay, well, but it gets weird because unless you know the, the pedigree is like, oh, Cloud9 became this, Immortals became that. Uh, but there's not really an association with the cities. So that's right. why my glaring issue. I think that's issue. something that's going to disappear as time goes on and as, as players start trading and new players come in and old players go out, <clears throat> the whole ties to who they were before are going to vanish. Yes. And 
it's not like I mean, it's not like the Kansas City Chiefs players are all people from the Kansas City area. No, it's, it's not. not like yeah. I mean, I mean it. I mean, half of the NHL is Canadian or Finnish or Russian. So, right? No, when, it's it's not a problem except that when you're trying to link against what was already existing, it was very much organized. Basically, uh, people from the same countries played together, even when there wasn't national teams. That's just how it was. So it gets for those of us who watch the transition, it's confusing. But yeah, I agree with you. It will sort itself out. That's not it's not a problem other than you. you, When you go in, you might be like, uh, well, what's what's London about? It's like none of these people have even been to London sort of stuff. It's like, well, you see, and that's the thing where I, I don't know when they'll implement all of that, but at least in the like in the NFL, they make you live in Kansas City if you're going to play right. for the Chiefs. So, I mean, you just have to be there during the season. <laughs> during the season, so there's a plan for all that. So that's okay. It's just a little weird. Uh, and the final one, and this is very ultimately nitpicky of me, but I don't think this one will resolve quickly. And that is the cities that they chose to have teams. Yeah, it is I don't... not diverse. No. It's, I mean, California has three teams. And two of them are in LA. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that, there, there's that not even, is there, ridiculous. it's not even like San Diego, LA, San Francisco. It's LA, LA, San Francisco. Now, to be fair, LA always seems to have more sports teams than they know what to do with. I mean, there's been times where LA's had two football teams. I think they might have two football teams now. Yeah, I mean, you could say three if you want to go ahead and count Oakland as LA because that's who most of them cheer for. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just one of those things that it's... It's it's okay. weird. Texas has it's, two. Right. Texas has two. All of Europe has a single team. London is the only team right. in Europe. And there are a lot of European players. Western Europe's full of great players. So it's it just weird. It's just weird. That South, South Korea, as I noted, a lot of the players are from South Korea. Why do they only have one team for the country? Why is Seoul the only city represented? Yeah, I'm I I I'm like you. I'm I'm kind of surprised at how they did the initial cities. I'm surprised that there wasn't now L.A. I understand L.A. I understand New York. I understand Philadelphia even. Sure. Uh, uh, those all make sense. Boston Dallas makes sense now. Dallas and Houston. No. But to be fair, Houston's a much better team. Yes. But Dallas is the bigger city. But I don't understand why there's uh, why London is the only European team. Why isn't there a Berlin team or a Paris team or a Stockholm team or something like that? Mm-hmm. Why isn't there a Canadian team? Also, and some of these are not. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I was, I where I was going was incorrect. I, I'm, I'm treading back. Yeah, there are just a lot of cities that I thought was. It's odd to me that Chicago's not there, um, but. But Miami is, I, you know, it's just, I don't know. Not saying that Miami. Where's my Kansas City Monarchs? Huh? They might be. Well, that'll be an expansion team. I never would have expected an area as small as Kansas City to be an initial one. But it's just, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just, I find it, I find it mysterious in some ways. But it's weird that Houston has a team and Chicago doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's things like that. It's just things like that. So I like how Florida just has, just the whole state of Florida has a team. Right. Well, that was what I was going to mention when I started uh, stuttering out was I was like, are they uh, are they Miami? Wait, no, it's Florida mayhem. That's what they call it. And New York, I don't think is New York City. I think it's New York State. And so 
because it's not the NYC Excelsior, it's New York Excelsior. Yeah. So some of these are organized by states, but most are organized by city. I mean, it is Seoul South Seoul Dynasty. It's Seoul South Korea, not all of South Korea. Yeah. Like Shanghai Dragons, not Beijing Dragons, not China Dragons. So yeah, I I at first I thought maybe that was because they were only had one team in the state, but uh, Fusion's not Pennsylvania; it's Philadelphia. So yeah, right. I don't I don't get it. So there, you know, just some inconsistencies that, uh, and, but I want to stress, these are all really, really minor. I needed to fill out the segment with something. And so I used the complaints. Uh, that, yeah. These, these are things that are going to even out as oh, yeah. the years go on. I, I have no doubt in my mind that the Overwatch League will continue. Its popularity is insane unless something big happens. I mean, it's still not unusual to see, uh, just the main, uh, stream is almost always over a hundred or 150,000 concurrent watchers. And that doesn't include the, uh, language, the different language streams, because there is a Korean language stream. There is, there, there is a French language stream there. I mean, they're on, they all have large amounts of viewers also. Right. And, and I do want to say that the, the production levels that they're putting behind the broadcast, it's, it's, it's really good. It's it really is. Good. It's, it is really. They are definitely pouring it all in. They. This isn't some. We're trying to do it. This is definitely a. We want this to be a thing. We are staking a claim here. We are. This is where we've planted our flag. This is what we're pushing. And I think they're doing a really good job yeah, with it. It really works. It. it it's. Uh, it's an example to all esports. I think in terms of just how they're putting the whole show together, how often it's airing as like a real a real sports uh, uh, season. So it yes. So those yeah. things it are, might be are, airing. A, they might be yeah. playing a little too much it's right a, now. A little too much. A little too much they're, like they're baseball. A little yeah, too little, too little too like, like football. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, they they might need to pare it down a little bit. I mean, I'm falling behind on other stuff because I'm watching Overwatch League four days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but at the same time, they've even gone so far as they haven't gotten rid of the old Overwatch uh, competitive setup, uh, like contenders. Contenders still exist. It's basically like the minor league, uh, is how it seems. They're still running a contenders in the fall. Um. There's and it doesn't involve the teams that are involved in league. There are other teams, so I, I don't know if they're still going to run a World Cup. Um, I would assume so. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't care. Actually, they can run what run whatever they want. I'll probably end up watching it. Uh, <laughs> but but I I think uh, a lot of other esports will consider going this way. Yeah, doing it this I, style. I, 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 I definitely could see him using it as a model because it seems to be working pretty well. Well, let's go ahead and go to our our last video game topic. Uh, This is one that actually uh, I saw uh, information on just after we did our last episode. And that was some rumors were going around. And I have a link to an article that discusses this regarding Microsoft, which I'm sure most people know they own the Xbox brand. And what some people who aren't into consoles may not know is that Microsoft has been struggling this generation, uh, particularly in 2017, with a perception problem. And I think that perception is based in reality. that They don't have enough first party titles. So there's not enough exclusive games if you're a console gamer to say, oh, I want to get an Xbox over a PlayStation. 
But whereas, or a Nintendo, where they have very deep, uh, first party studios that, uh, have a, you know, a library with a litany of known entities. It's just, they're, they're more exclusives on other systems is the, is the problem. And so Microsoft finds itself, well, it's still in second place until the Nintendo Switch catches up and surpasses it, but, uh, they're significantly behind probably on a two to one ratio from, uh, the PS4. Which it's not a terrible quantity amount, but as a percentage of the pie, it's bad. So the rumors have been, and I don't think the rumors were surprising, that Microsoft has been looking to buy its way out of this problem by acquiring a major studio. That is different than what I have often, as again, as people who have heard me whine about <laughs> video games and whine about Xbox, that is the current gen console I went in on, is that I've, I've often thought they need to buy a established, but not strongly successful studio. And my go-to has always been Capcom. Capcom is weak. Capcom is mismanaged. Capcom has great IP though. So you buy something like that instead of, you don't have enough time. You need to solve this problem as soon as possible because you want it fixed for the next generation. So the idea that I have is instead of growing new studios internally, which you should still do, you buy your way out of the problem and you're like, okay, Resident Evil is now an Xbox thing. Street Fighter is now an Xbox thing. Pro- there, problem solved. At least in part, problem solved. Because people know that stuff. There are people that will buy things just to play those games. The rumored companies, though, are way bigger than anything I ever imagined. Yeah. And they have included that's... PUBG Corp, Valve, and Electronic Arts. So <laughs> I thought maybe we should just sort of discuss... I mean, I guess PUBG Corp wouldn't surprise me because PUBG... This, that's Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. PUBG Corp makes that. It currently is console exclusive on Xbox, so that relationship is there, but I don't, I don't think that solves their problem because that's just one game. I mean, PUBG Corp didn't do anything else. Right. And while it doesn't solve their problem, I think it is in my mind the most realistic one for them to pick up or at least the most realistic one for them to start with. Of that list, definitely. Of that list, yeah, as something to grab before their exclusivity with PUBG drops so they can maintain it. The other thing is I I like Steam, and if they bought Valve, I really hope they wouldn't just get the gaming section of Valve and not Steam because the idea of Microsoft taking over my Steam makes me sad. Mm. Yeah, and I and again, this was this was just in a rumor list, so I have no idea. Steam in and of itself would not relate to the exclusivity situation that they'd be trying to solve with a Valve acquisition. So no, but it would solve their 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 Windows Store problem. Yeah, I mean, no one likes to buy things on the Windows Store. That's always that's always been true. They had that problem with games for Windows Live as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I I don't know. Uh, but I don't know if Valve would be interested in selling Steam. But I could, I could easily imagine if it wasn't have to acquire the whole company. I don't think it would be unrealistic for them to say we want to buy your development teams and all your IP because Valve yeah. ain't doing anything with them. So, no. so, and it, that that would be good pedigree. That would be the having Portal, having Left for Dead. I mean. Half-Life, I think, is a little past its expiration date in terms of having as much of an impact as... It, it has more of an impact for people like me than it does for new gamers. But Portal and Left 4 Dead resonated really well in the last generation. So there are a lot of gamers that still think very, very fondly of those 
games because it wasn't that long ago that they had them. Yes, but can you imagine the insanity that would roll up if they if Microsoft put out a Portal 3 or not a Portal 3 but a Half-Life 3 and the sheer hatred and the anger that would roll off people <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they get more angry. Uh, would they rather have never had it? I, I mean, that's the only other alternative because Valve will never make it. No, no, they won't. And they're smart. I think they're smart not to make it. I think it's something that has gotten to a point where there is no way to safely do it without causing bigger issues and or failure and hurting your brand overall. It, it it's could better be. to leave it yeah. dead. Yeah, I, I mean, if I were if I were looking at Valve, Half Life is not what I want. I want Portal mostly, and Left for Dead uh, would be my secondary because th- that could definitely be improved upon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't think it, it's you know it doesn't have it hasn't reached legendary status. You can you could just modernize that and make it a better game than it had been. Yeah. Then the, the the final one was the biggest shocker one, and I can't really get my head around the idea of Microsoft actually acquiring Electronic Arts, and mostly mostly because it would lose so much. I mean, for me, it's a it's sort of a math question. They would buy EA's like worth, uh, I think it's around thirty five billion dollars. Now now let's let's be clear. Microsoft could afford they could buy all of these. They are in cash have I think something on the order of 130 billion dollars. So this is this ain't nothing to them. If they wanted to just buy that's why they should buy their way out of the problem. They have cash, just take your tax write off. But I mean they did it last year. They just didn't do it on the gaming side. Right. But but the issue with getting something like EA is you buy a 35 billion dollar valued company and then you immediately have devalued it if it's only going to put things out on Let's say Xbox and PC, because they, they are fine with people buying things on Windows PCs. So, but if you're going to say, all right, well, Madden's not on PS4 anymore, then not everyone's immediately just going to say, oh, well, now I have to buy an Xbox. Some people will be just like, I'm not going to buy Madden then. And so the company value. Are people really going to say, I'm not going to buy Madden? You know, it's because hard, it's I would hard think people imagine, would be but... saying, I'm not going to buy Madden for like the last 15 freaking years. Look, I'm just, there are some people that are gonna, they won't be able to afford it. They won't be able to afford to buy the console to buy Madden. I, something like that. I'm gonna, I'm sticking with my guns here. I'm gonna stick with it. The, I think the math is there that you have to ask yourself if you're Microsoft, how long will we have to sit here, uh, and grow our Xbox brand and our Windows sales before EA is selling the same number of units as it was when it was multi-platform? Valid. Very valid. That's that's what I think is the biggest issue. I mean, from a gamer standpoint, I think this actually would be great because EA is one of the most hated companies in America, so there is no way Microsoft could trash it any further than it has done itself. That's so incredibly true. It's one of the reasons I would not mind seeing them pick it up. I don't think it's the best idea, but anything – I think Microsoft could make EA be a better company, period. Now, I guess if you were an Xbox owner and I, and you were to be told, uh, money is no object, but you can only pick one, pick a company for Microsoft to buy that would give them an excellent first party option that would make people go, Oh, we should buy the system. It's like you're, you're, you're Phil Spencer now and your, and your one job is find one company to just basically make people buy Xbox. What, what do you pick? 
Sony. Sony. <laughs> That's actually, I think that is, as Steve Bowden would say, that is the objectively right answer. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me change it so that, you know, I, I guess I could one up you and say Nintendo, but, but <laughs> let's, 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 uh, let me, uh, let me qualify that to make it a little more fun and say you can't pick a hardware manufacturer. Can't pick a hardware manufacturer. Right. Not a, not a console manufacturer, not another, not like, not Apple that makes P, you know, Max, more traditional software entity. But anyone you um, want. Anyone I want. Yeah. Wow. Um, trying to think. That's not. It could be one of the three on the list if you want. Well, that's what I, I mean. I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of liking EA just because I don't necessarily know that it's the necessarily the best choice, but it is. It give, I think it would give them the most other stuff. You know what? Let's pull off this list and look at. I, I feel know, that I'm hearing I'm hearing searches. I feel I'm hearing searches. You are hearing searches. Bethesda wouldn't be bad. Actually, that's an interesting one. Yeah, uh, RPG Deep, um, but also that would give you the uh, Wolfenstein. Give you the Wolfenstein's. It would give you the Skyrim and all the Elder Scroll games. It would give you Fallout. It would give you. That's um, you know, I think that, Bethesda would be the best current because it, it it gives them the Dishonored games. Yeah, I think of without going with an insanely huge company, I I, I like Bethesda. Actually, I I really like your suggestion. Yeah, Bethesda. I think that that one would be very attractive. Um, and rolling out a a huge portfolio. I mean, uh, another I guess easy one one could throw out would have been to say Activision. Which I uh, was see, I was Activision was my first thought, and the more I thought about it, it's like I don't really like that one. Ubisoft would work also. Ubisoft, I actually could envision Ubisoft being a, a more practical uh, option for them. I'll, I'll tell you the one that came to my mind first, even though they don't have a ton of IP. Rockstar. I don't know, and the reason I is don't know if they you, have enough. Uh, yeah, it's I, pay, I, it's pay I, to win. You do Rockstar. You do Rockstar, and you say, "Here's Grand Theft Auto Six. So you will buy our machine because it's Grand oh, Theft Auto." Square. Square. Square takes twice as long as Rockstar and puts out half a good as a product, hmm. but it has a bigger fan base, and it gets them into the Asian markets where they traditionally have problems. I've wondered about an idea that would help. That's sort of why I've always kind of liked Capcom as a concept. Is it would give them a major Japanese studio. Uh, Microsoft in the 360 generation really did really, I mean, they really did try and punch into Japan. They got a number of exclusive JRPG titles and it just didn't take, it just didn't work. Now Square could be big enough that it would. I, I think that that's true, but here's the, I mean, the behemoth that is Grand Theft Auto 5. What, what is its sales now across all platforms? 75 million copies. And yeah, they, it's something huge. They they are their own brand. They have their own marketing setup. They are the they are the true behemoth on the scene in terms of that they're so highly respected that Microsoft were to say we're acquiring Rockstar, we're not messing with the creative development team. They are totally their own entity. It's only on Xbox though. So open your wallet. We've also doubled the price of Xbox because you're going to pay for it. They wouldn't do that part, but no. 
But right. hey, you go back to like the EA thing. Hey, get e- get EA and say, yeah, we're doing EA. It's Xbox exclusive. We're banning any loot crates on future, on any future games. No more loot crates. There, they just improved the company. Problem solved. Problem <laughs> solved. It's now not worth thirty five billion dollars, but uh, hey, but other all other problems are solved. Yeah, those are all. Those are all some pretty solid. I like the Bethesda things. one though. That's that's good. I think I like Bethesda. I I like Rockstar. The reason I really like your suggestion of Bethesda is it. I think it fills a major. I mean, Wolfenstein, uh, Doom. Okay, those are those are like bro shooters. That that's sort of Xbox's domain already. But Bethesda has an excellent stable of deep story driven. Uh, single player experiences. In fact, they advertised it during the game ceremonies. They had Linda Carter do that this little thing that was like a self help. Yeah, are you suffering from from multiplayer <laughs> de- deficiency syndrome or something? Uh, and it was really really clever. It was like Bethesda, where we make single. It's like yes, you know, games that are that multi hour deep enjoy. That's what Sony had. That's what Sony's exclusives are. That's what Horizon Zero Dawn and Near are. And yes. that's what Microsoft needs is more of that. Cause I think they're stable on the exclusive side on that is weak. Bethesda solves that problem for them. So yeah, I think I like your Bethesda one. I, I hope they buy a Bethesda. Well, Bethesda would also give them Quake. I forgot about that. Yep. Yep. Quake and Doom. Yep. Yeah. This- and a good, and, and, and it would give them a VR stable, uh, already built pre-positioned VR team. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe interesting. Well, Tony, I think, think we've made it to the end of the show we have it seems remarkably quick today yes because our, our part of recording today has been remarkably quick <laughs> uh as a reminder you can always reach out to us facebook.com slash eclectic gamers podcast or you can email the show eclectic gamers podcast at gmail.com and we're on instagram and twitter primarily the instagram at eclectic underscore gamers and on our next episode assuming all scheduling holds true we do plan to have another guest host uh, someone who is more on the collector side of the pinball hobby. So I'm hoping we'll have some good discussions for you then. But regardless, in two weeks, uh, we'll talk to you later. See ya. Bye.